0: All right, my friends, thanks for tuning into the podcast, where, as always, we'll discuss the professional literature and the evidence-based protocol as they relate to the effective treatment of clinically significant anxiety symptoms. I'm Chris Lines, licensed psychotherapist and OCD spectrum disorders treatment specialist. And this, well, this is OCD Straight Talk. This podcast is made possible by NoCD. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient OCD therapy. NoCD therapists are trained in exposure and response prevention, or ERP therapy, the gold standard treatment for OCD. With NoCD, you can do virtual, live face-to-face video sessions with one of their licensed, specialty-trained therapists, and they accept most major insurance plans. To find out more about NoCD, Visit nocd.com. That's N O C D.com to book a free 15 minute call. For people in the state of Kentucky, you can go to kentuckyocd.com. That's K E N T U C K Y O C D.com and book a session with me. Kimberly Quinlan, host of Your Anxiety Toolkit, founder of cbtschool.com a resource designed to help people and patients along the road of their treatment process, owner and director of the Kimberly Quinlan LMFT private practice and author of the Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. Kimberly, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, my privilege, my privilege. So tell me this, how did you become a clinician? How about we start there?
1: Um, I was a personal trainer. I had an eating disorder. Being a personal trainer was not allowing me to fully recover from my eating disorder. Uh, Being around all that, those mirrors and all that weight loss being the goal always Mm. was not super healthy for me. So I decided to change careers and half of being a personal trainer was being a therapist anyway. And I always sort of wanted to do that. So it was a no brainer.
0: Sure, sure. So like you would work with people, not just on their goals, but on... Uh, beating certain challenges and the the thought processes and and maybe habits of behavior that go into maintaining those challenges. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and you've been a clinician for ten or fifteen years. How long has it been?
1: Yeah, uh, thirteen, four, nearly fourteen years.
0: Nice. Okay. Good deal. And you chose you chose the uh, LMFT track.
1: I did. Uh, It was actually, I mean, of course I came from Australia. My accent is Australian. It was going to be very difficult for me to do a PhD or anything like that. I would have to have done all this back work. And LMFT was just like the best, easiest route for me to get, to do the thing I wanted to do. So I was very happy to do that and grateful I did it.
0: Sure. Now to do the thing that you wanted to do, was that Uh, did that initially involve OCD work and, and anxiety disorders treatment, or was it initially maybe something more general?
1: No. So I really at at the beginning wanted to work with panic disorder. I had several Mm. loved ones in my life who were struggling with anxiety. I myself was struggling with anxiety. So that was sort of, I just was more like GAD. That was my goal. Um, and I really wanted to work with groups. Um, and so I found the only place who could do those two things was the OCD center in Los Angeles. And they were the ones who had a really great opportunity for an internship. So I thought, you know, I'll take it. And sure. then before I knew it, I had these like very specific specialty I was trained in and I loved it. So it kind of just happened by no plan or no, you know, specific plan, you know, goal inside. It just sort of happened to be that way. And I hmm. luckily fell in love with the work.
0: Yeah, totally. I, it's funny because like, for me, I, uh, took a, uh, like an interview. I was moving to Louisville from the East coast and, and, uh, in Kentucky and, uh, and took an interview and had, I had no idea truly it's, it's kind of a, kind of a silly story, but I had no idea throughout the duration of the interview we ended up being offered the position. Still had no idea. Uh, took the job. I just thought it was like a, I, at the time I was like a talk therapist and just thought this is like a therapy job and, you know, sure, whatever, blah, blah. So, you know, so I took the job and, and then it's like my, my first, I think it might've been my first day. Surely my first week I was a, um, I was a Confederate. I was, uh, uh, sort of a, uh, sort of defining that word. I was someone who, who, uh, was, uh, something of a, of a, of an actor in an exposure, uh, for another person. Uh, in any case, so I find myself on this, like on this gay date, right. And and, I, you know, I, I, I still was really new. I had no idea really what I was doing. I didn't really know what an exposure was. And so it was, you know, sort of welcome to, to OCD work. And here Mm -hmm. I am, I, I had, uh, you know, applied for this job with no idea really what it was, but, and then like you totally, totally fell in love with the work I had been interested in anxiety work, I guess i um, probably more overwhelmed by it than interested, but you know, and then thrown in neck deep. And, yeah. In any case. So you uh, sort of doing your training at it's, it's in LA, it's the, it's the OCD treatment center. What was it?
1: OCD center of Los Angeles.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you did your training there and fell in love with, with all things clinical anxiety.
1: Yeah. Nice. And nice. all
0: things CBT and exposure too. Fuck yes, yes. Yeah, for me, like I, I was not, I was not a CBT guy at all before Louisville, right? I mean, I brought like all things psychodynamic theory and emotion-focused mm-hmm. therapy. Oh, you know, I was damn good at it, I guess. But, uh, but I really, I wasn't getting anybody better in terms of OCD before before that stuff. So, through school, was there a modality that you were really passionate about before CBT, before uh, anxiety work, or was there something you really loved to do before this?
1: Well, my, by default, again, my first elective was a CBT course. Um, and I was so excited about it. I mean, the professor was so inspiring the way he talked about helping people and so forth and then I went on to like take other electives in other words and every single time I took other modality electives I was just like no still not my jive it's still great and I think cool that they have them but more the way I think and I make sense of the world that was by far the way I wanted it to be and so yeah it, again fell in my hands that that was right off the bat the first thing that I came to me and loved it 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 just makes sense to me. I, it's the way that I think. So it really helped me and helped and now helps my patients.
0: Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I look back on those days before I became an OCD therapist. And I mean, to this day, I really love doing talk therapy. Uh, I really love sort of helping people to uncover and explore um, previous experiences and, and how those experiences affect their their. Conceptualization of the world uh, and their place in it today—you uh, know, connecting with them and, and helping them to feel understood and and all those things. But there is something too—the the brass tacks and and the the roadmap of working the behavioral patterns and identifying targeted uh, behavioral choices that are we might say maladaptive or unhelpful within that uh, uh, symptom system and changing those and watching people begin to really take control and make progress. Big deal. Big deal.
1: For sure. For yeah. Sure.
0: yeah. Uh, so speaking of behaviors, do you incorporate any sort of cognitive strategies or techniques into the exposure and response prevention piece or the ERP uh, uh, dynamic, generally speaking?
1: It's very, I'm a very... I guess the word is intuitive therapist, meaning I follow an ERP model and a CBT model and I try to gauge based on the client what I think they need. And I'm usually checking in with them on what they think they need. I tend to be more behavioral, but there are often cases where we need to slow down and look at some of those cognitions, particularly if there's someone who is heavily critical of themselves. Uh, You know, and I want to sort of also notice um, and discuss is like a lot of it is psychoeducation, not cognitive so much, but me actually giving psychoeducation um, as a form of cognitive therapy in some respects, you know, like about understanding how the brain is reacting or understanding why their brain is, you know, having anxiety about certain things and what's going on in their brain. So I do a lot of that psychoeducation as a huge part of treatment as well. Um, you know, I think it depends on each patient. Again, no one patient has ever been the same. And I think I'm okay, you know, checking in with them, assessing them, deciding whether they need more cognitive than they need behavioral. I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in really identifying what someone is avoiding. And getting them back to you know the behaviors that they would function functionally need, and that usually takes some behavioral work, but I'm okay to do some cognitive work if need be, to get them there. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And so kind of jumping back a couple of seconds in what you said, uh, the term psychoeducation by that you're you're sort of pointing to uh, statistics and and research studies and and neurology, that is to say the function of the brain and 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 helping people to understand specific pieces. Uh, that are empowering them ultimately to making the next steps and, and, and beginning to uh, reduce symptom severity through the behavior pieces that you were talking about.
1: Absolutely. And I think, again, it depends on the specific fear. If somebody has a fear of flying, I may encourage them to do some, you know, learning about the safety of planes, not as a form of reassurance, but just so that they understand the mechanics or if, somebody, let's say has contamination OCD, we might, you know, recognize that their ideation around germs and contamination, you know, might be completely, you know, not informed. So we could, we could do a little, again, you have to be careful that we're not going to be doing that in a way that's repetitive and reassuring. Um, But many people who have phobias, uh, you know, General anxiety do require some reality testing or some fact checking in some degree.
0: and I, I think that that's that's interesting because like lots of patients will sort of object when it comes to uh, exposure work and and um, and working to specifically working to stop compulsions, They'll object to the idea that uh, that their OCD is keeping them safe, right? Or that there are uh, realistic elements to these fears, right? And 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 I and I find that having the discussion with them as to where uh, these real world fears and responsible concerns and an OCD begins is uh, is a conversation that not every patient, admittedly, but lots and lots of patients benefit from.
1: For sure. For sure. Everyone. I mean, I think we all deserve a right to just getting the facts. Um, but again, we still have to be careful and understand the mechanics of how, particularly if you have a more obsessive compulsive brain, like sometimes the facts mean nothing and your OCD brain still wants certainty. And we have to accept a degree of not having that certainty. And we can use tools to help them manage that. So
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they'll want to talk about likelihood and all that bullshit. And, you know, yeah. of course, where, where that ends is is the same place that it begins, which is, well, I don't know, right? Yeah. I mean, we can talk about, you know, it's 80% likely that this or that's going to happen, or it's very unlikely that I've actually been exposed to whatever it might be. But again, yeah. in terms of what the future holds and, and, um, and whether or not I'm going to have to face whatever fear it is, right, is it remains unknown. And so to be able to accept that, uh, and identify and stop compulsions amidst the uncertainty is, is really a a helpful and, and advantageous uh, uh, thing for, for patients to do. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's interesting too, because like going back to the cognitive piece, there's lots of, of OCD therapists that would, uh, that would disparage the idea of uh, John Grayson's, Uh, uncertainty concept, right? Uh, Lots of clinicians that would, uh, that's not something that I'm going to do with patients. And that's not something that some, some clinicians might even, might even refer to the usage of uncertainty in the clinical process as nonsense. Uh, I, I wonder if you could talk about why it is that you find uncertainty to be helpful, even necessary for patients.
1: Well, my view, the way that I conceptualize it is everyone is in a case where they don't know what they don't know, right? Like uncertainty is a normal, natural part of life. I work from more of a mindfulness perspective, which is the acceptance piece of Grayson's work, which is accepting that it is what it is. And in so many cases, I don't have certainty about what the client has uncertainty about either. Right. Like, and I think of it through the lens of more. The experience of uncertainty, not, not, I don't really get on the bandwagon in terms of like, you have to be uncertain, you know, and uncertain of the worst case happening, like, yes, that's true. But I'm more interested with clients about like, what does that feel like to you? What is it about the experience of uncertainty that you're not willing to have? Because it's here, you're feeling it. You're feeling you. And again, I would go on to say is most clients with anxiety, it's not just uncertainty that they don't like. It's that they're having anxiety in association to that uncertainty, which is really setting off alarm bells in their brain. So for me, we could call it bibbity bobbity boo In my opinion, I, I'm more interested in, what is going on for you in your body that you don't want to feel and that you're pushing away, and in an effort to push it away, you have to use these safety behaviors which make it worse. Um, let's talk about what that. Let's talk about that. Let's look at why you frame this as un- intolerable or undoable, and let's move towards what do we need to do in your specific set of situation to get it to where you aren't running away from this human experience. Um, and by but-
0: the way, the the behaviors, the safety behaviors, the rituals, the compulsive patterns, whatever language we're using, they don't reduce and they certainly don't eliminate uncertainty. You know, it was there before we were concerned about it. It's here now, regardless of what we do in terms of the the time consumption of compulsions and, and our Our determination or tenacity relative to engaging them, it's still here and it's always going to be here, right? And so working to not just acknowledge that, but even use the uncertainty as something of a a tool that will help us to see the logic in abandoning compulsions, because again, they don't change uncertainty. They don't change the future. Uh, you might say, well, they reduce the likelihood. But again, what does that mean? And how are we going to measure that? We're ultimately still left with the same thing, which is I don't fucking know. I don't know what's going to happen.
1: Exactly.
0: Now, I always find this this interesting to talk about. I hope that it's all right that I'm asking you kind of, something of a of a background and personal question. Is there a supervisor or someone clinically for you that Uh, that really left a mark someone that you look back on and you say this person helped maybe in a significant way, maybe in an insignificant way uh, to shape me as a clinician, not, not so much as a person. I don't mean to say that broadly, but, but in terms of the person that you are sitting in the room with the patient when, when he or she is, is in intensely symptomatic, is there a person in your past that you sort of think back to and say, uh, this tool or that strategy, uh, this sort of, uh, style, uh, is mine because of this supervisor.
1: Uh, supervisor. I had a supervisor at the OCD center of Los Angeles. His name was Tom Corboy. He taught me everything I know regarding the foundations of ERP and CBT. So no brainer. He was my supervisor. He sat with me for my entire internship. I only had an internship at one place, and it was specialising in this one specialty, these these sort of cluster of of diagnoses. So for sure, um, but that was the nuts and bolts. On top of that, are many layers of influence. Um, I was a traineeship. You know, I was in my traineeship with John Hirschfeld. We were interns together. He we consulted all the time. He was huge. Stacy Walkner was another person who was intern with me. And, you know, I watched them in supervise group supervision, ask their questions. And that was so influential to me. But then much bigger than that, or as in addition to that, as much as that is people like Tara Brock, who is a mindfulness teacher, literally shaped my own recovery. And my own recovery is a lot of the lens in which I treat my patients my own therapist uh, at the time was a huge impact on how I actually sit with patients and then ask the questions that I ask. So it's multi-layered.
0: Sure, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that these people, they, they are in some real way, they're, they're building blocks of who we are as clinicians. Uh, you know, I, I think of my own training and my own supervision. And of course, all of this was after uh, graduate school right uh, when i when i was you know spit out the back under grad school i was a talk therapist like you know a lot of other clinicians and and i didn't really know what i was doing and was at least in terms of anxiety work i mean to say uh, and was intimidated by panic attacks and was intimidated by uh, intrusive thoughts or or obsessional material uh really really nervous and and that was something of an ironic experience i guess sitting with an anxious person but i mean totally i, I think that looking back, the, these can be really, really profound experiences. Uh, and uh, to, to reference again, your podcast, these become uh, tools in our, in our kit, these, these people and the conversations that we've had with them. What do you think is, is the difference between an OCD therapist who's really good uh, who, who is, is competent and who has a pretty good history of of helping individuals make progress and to uh, uh, reduce uh, symptom suffering and so on, who's, who's pretty good, uh, an OCD, let's say, specialist, and, and you are one run-of-the-mill talk therapist. What to your mind is, and I'm sorry to spring this one on you, what, what do you think is the difference? Again, no right or wrong answer. What's your thought?
1: No, I'm happy to answer this question. It's a great question. Um, Okay. So they'd have to have a couple of things. I have staff myself. So I think about this a lot, right? Like what, why would I, you know, would I, would I refer my brother to my therapist? What would, you know, that's the level in which I would want them to be. Right. So number one, they have to be aware that the goal for me, this is just me too, is the reduction of compulsions. That is a huge goal for me, for clients, to get them back to functioning. In order to do that, one of their biggest superpowers is can they catch in the room when people are doing compulsions? Little nuanced compulsions. So can they
0: teach people how to find compulsions? Is that kind of what you mean?
1: can Can I teach my staff to catch when a client is using therapy as a
0: compulsion? I see.
1: Right? Because in therapy, when we're, you know, giving psychoeducation, giving people exposure, lots of compulsions come out, little pieces of reassurance, little, you know, it's all through it. And so it's important to catch that we're not spending a lot of time reviewing the uncertainty, trying to get them certainty, you know, that kind of thing. Above all the things though, we have all the research to back that rapport with a client is number one. So even if you're the most skilled clinician and I get my staff, the best supervision and the best training, and I'm on them and I'm watching their treatment goals. And, or even if I was watching them, you know, and, and studying their work, the rapport they have with their clients is going to be key. So you must be able to slow down long enough to acknowledge somebody's discomfort, not invalidate what they're going through. Um, you know provide, for me, a lot of what I will talk with my staff about is we're also there sort of as marketers for this treatment, meaning we're here to encourage them and give them some faith that they can recover. We're there to keep cheering them on and and saying you can do this because so often our anxiety will teach us or tell us you can't do this. This is too hard. Give up. So, where they're cheering them on, saying, "Yes, you can, and so forth. So there's so many layers to being a good therapist. Um, for the people who are new, let's say maybe you're listening to this and you're feeling overwhelmed, these are skills that you develop over time, and even just having a little bit of each can be very valuable for a client.
0: Very good. So I think that there, and i've and I've been thinking about this a fair amount lately. I, I'm not quite sure why it's been heavy on my mind. Well, okay, I do have some idea, but I'll keep that to myself. Uh, I, I have this this thought that there's a difference between the skill set that we have as therapists uh, and the, the processes and the strategies that we use and that we work to teach patients and and that we're walking patients through for the purpose of symptom reduction and and so on, and the skills that we use as podcasters right? And that there's that there's a difference between these, these skill sets. Uh, so let let me let me ask you this. How did you get into podcasting? Like, how did my anxiety toolkit begin? What's the story?
1: So I had got my own practice in 2016. Um, to be honest, I just needed a way to get the website out there as a marketing thing. And I thought this was a great way to do it. I didn't want to buy Facebook ads and I didn't want to call every doctor in the neighborhood. And I thought it would be fun. Um, I like talking, (laughs) that's my thing. Um, and I like talking without video, not that now, I'm very good at video, but in 2016 video was not something everyone was doing. Um, I also, as much as I love treating anxiety disorders, I love mindfulness and compassion work. That's my jam beyond anything. If anyone asks me, are you an OCD therapist or CBT therapist? No, I'm a mindfulness based therapist. That's what I prefer to be. Um, And I really felt like that was a piece of the work that people weren't really doing a lot of back then. right? Um, Now it's mainstream and everyone's talking about it. And for no way am I saying that I'm the one who brought it to the OCD community. That's not what I'm saying. But it was an important piece where I was like, I could talk about this all day. And this is something I think would be super helpful and super cool and fun. So I just bought a cheap microphone and was like, I'm going to host a podcast. And I just sort of started. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into, nor did I know how much work it would be. But, um,
0: But I'll bet you knew that people needed to hear your voice
1: well shockingly there have been so many times where i've wanted to give up and a part of the reason i haven't is because people will say they needed that piece more than anything the thing that i get the most feedback was people need encouragement and they feel like they need a safe place to land and that's sort of what my podcast Specializes in is like a lot of validation, a lot of encouragement, a lot of gentle support, um, compassion, some right. tools here and there. That's it.
0: Well, the truth of it is, like, lots and lots of people have been there, done that with therapy, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, a lot of the people listening to OCD Straight, uh, straight Talk will write in. Uh, and will say that, well, I'm not in therapy. Uh, I've been in therapy before, but I'm not in therapy now. And they'll kind of express why that is. And, and more often than not, it's because they tried it. Uh, I'm not sure the specifics of the story in every case, but they tried it, they didn't make progress. Maybe they tried it again, maybe even again, and eventually they sort of gave up on the idea. But then there's these podcasts, and there's these self help books like like yours. And and others, uh, uh, John Abramowitz and, and, and John Grayson. And, you know, there's, there's tons of these really helpful texts as well as these podcasts that are specific and that are practical and that are rife with techniques and, and strategies. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, and you started, you said back in 2016, that was four years before I started OCD straight talk. And I, and I feel like, you know, um, I don't know what I was going to say. Uh, but I mean, so you've been doing it a long time. You, you've you've helped unquestionably lots and lots of people.
1: It, I I will also add, it's a lonely process, right? Like I, I'm hoping I've helped a lot of people. The the thing about podcasting is, you're talking to them into their ear, but you actually have no idea who's listening. Right? You have no face to the name. You don't know their name. You don't you you know the downloads, but you don't know. Where they're coming from, so it, it it is quite crazy when someone says like, "Oh, you helped me," yes, um, because. Usually, when you help someone, there's a face and you can see their facial expression, and you give each yeah. other a hug, and it's it can, it's just not that. Yeah. It's a one way, one
0: way. Exactly one way. so there's this there's this dialogue element where you can talk about the specifics of the problem, and you can get into uh, what the anxiety is about in terms of the uh, the the obsessional material or the thoughts that are eliciting the anxiety. You can talk specifically about the compulsive responses and and really begin to unearth what's happening for him or her. But all of a sudden, yeah, I think that that's one of the pieces that I'm trying to point to in this question of the the distinction between skill sets. Like, I'm really comfortable, as I'm sure are you, talking with people in the room who are dealing with intense symptoms and, and ongoing, longstanding, debilitating problems and helping them to make uh, progress, real measurable progress, and in a time limited kind of way. I mean, I'm I'm comfortable there. But yeah, when you're talking about a podcast, it's like, yeah, sure, I'm going to get into all this shit and all this, like, all the heaviness of all these like sexually taboo fears and, and all this, you know, all these things that people, some of it is really, really uh, intense to talk about. I think the word would be monologically, you know, like by yourself. And like you say, I don't know who's listening to this. And I'm going to talk about, you know, like, like dicks and, 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 you know, all the shit, you know, it's, it's like, it's intense, you know, and I think that there's that there's something to be said in terms of creating a, a podcast that's meaningfully helpful to people in general, at the same time talking about specific stuff.
1: Well, and that's why I'm so grateful for you, for example, right? Because my podcast isn't a lot about dicks, right? Like I'm <laughs> I'm more general, I, Mine's you're, you know, but we need yours and other OCD podcasts that go deep into subtypes and things. People are always asking me, like, can you do a podcast on this? And I don't do that because, not because I'm against it. I mean, everyone knows, and I talk about examples during it, but a lot of it is because I'm talking to a broader audience you know, in a broader way. Thank God for the podcasts that are talking about, you know, dicks and guns and all the things. Like, thankfully you're doing that work. And I think it's great. When I first started, it was mine and Stu Rouse, the OCD, you know, that was it. Now there is a handful of OCD podcasts going into the deep stuff. And clients will tell me like, oh my goodness, I thought I was literally the only person on the planet. But then Chris came on and talked about dicks. And that's exactly what my obsession is. Thank God for Chris.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I hear you. I hear you. And that's, I think that that's another one of those things that when you say anxiety has a way of telling us that, you know, we're not going to win. It's too strong. It also has a way of alienating us, right? And making us feel like we're alone and we're by ourselves. And we might as well give up because there's nobody coming to help us and, you know, that, that, that kind of bullshit. So uh, awesome. Awesome. Kimberly Quinlan, very, very uh, great to have you on. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of OCD straight talk. Feel free to reach out with any questions you might have to chrislines04 at gmail.com. If you found the podcast helpful, consider giving it a five-star rating or subscribing to OCD Straight Talk for structured help with your anxiety or OCD symptoms.